When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. How many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man? Yes, and how many seas must a white dove sail before she sleeps in the sand? Yes, and how many times must the cannonballs fly before they're forever banned? The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly. And joining me to talk about probably, arguably, the most famous song in the entire Bob Dylan songbook, Blowing in the Wind, is my pal and musician, Nathaniel Glasser. Hi, Nathaniel. Hi, Rob. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Happy New Year. I am uh, so glad to have you back on the show to be talking about this monumental song. Happy New Year to you, too. And I just have to say from the beginning, I'm very excited to be here. Thanks for having me. And I've said it before, but you're a mensch, and this is a big mitzvah. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, I, you know, when I saw the dates of how they were lining up, that uh, the, the, you know, I would have an episode of Pod Dylan out on the first day of the new year. I was like, well, let's let's do something big. Let's do something, you know, really significant in the, in the Dylan songbook. And you, uh, you know, we've been talking about you coming back to the show for a while. Now you've been on the show twice before. And then you mentioned this one and we hadn't covered it yet. And I thought, well, it, you know, I mean, I was sort of afraid to cover it in some ways because it's so huge. Yeah. I mean, it is arguably his most famous song. It's one of the most famous songs in the popular culture of the last half century. Uh, but so we're going to do our best to cover uh, this, <laughs> this song. This, again, <laughs> this titanic achievement in popular songwriting. So uh, the first thing I want to start off with. Uh, yeah. is the, the phrase that I think about. I mean, we have lots of stuff to talk about. There's many versions of it, and there's a mm-hmm. million covers and all these sorts of things. But the, the, thing, the first thing I could think about when I put that in my notes is yeah. the phrase, genius arrives. And I put that down because I remembered from reading different books the context of this, where, of course, as we know, Bob Dylan had been signed to Columbia Records by John Hammond, the legendary mm-hmm. John Hammond, who was, uh, had an ear for talent, like you would not believe. And, uh, you know, he heard something in this guy, in this strange kid. And the rest of Columbia Records was like, hmm? And, uh, you know, they even called him Hammond's Folly at one point. And there was that famous story that when Bob was recording his first album, the other studios would go and shut their doors because they oh. just couldn't stand the, that, that awful sound coming out of that kid. Oh and... So, so they put out the first record, which came out in uh, March of 62, Bob Dylan, mm-hmm. and it doesn't do anything. You know, <laughs> it's like it just kind of goes and nobody really, I mean, it was among Bob Dylan's folk circles. It was big because, it may, you know, he got landed on Columbia. This wasn't some little podunk label. This was Columbia yeah. Records. But nevertheless, it didn't do any business. And I, you know, you got to wonder kind of the alternate histories of the world. What would have happened? if Bob Dylan had put together a second record that had equally flopped, mm-hmm. maybe that would have been it, you know, maybe it would have been Bob Dylan did two records and then, you know, he was a, he was a Llewellyn Davis. He just would have disappeared, yeah. but he kind of knew that this next record had to count. And mm-hmm. a, less than one month after the debut of the Bob Dylan record hit the, you know, hit stores, he debuts this song. 
And to me, that talk about timing. Talk about knowing, uh, you know, I, being able to pull something out of the ether that was meaningful to people, but would also absolutely lay down your claim as I'm the guy. And this is the song that did it. I mean, this yeah. is really it. So, t- I mean, again, there's, of course, there's half a dozen other masterpieces on the free wheel with Bob Dylan, yeah. such as this song, but this is the one. So can you remember Nathaniel when you ever first heard this song or was it like you, like for me, was it just always in the culture? I mean, so I think I've, I'm going to probably repeat a few things that I said on the on previous episodes, but you know, I grew up, um, uh, I'm born 1980. My parents, um, I'm the youngest of four siblings. And um, my parents, uh, my dad was born in the 30s. My mom was born in the 40s. And they were, they're from New York. And um, they were definitely like folkies. You could say they were also into, um, I guess this is kind of part of the scene too. Like uh, when Ravi Shankar's record came out, you know, um, that, that was big. And then they also were um, avid uh, classical music fans um interestingly enough i i don't think that necessarily was so contradictory um uh then that's a, another subject but basically to to keep it shorter um <laughs> i definitely listened to, i remember hearing this song in the car on the way to we would visit our relatives in new york i, I grew up in connecticut um and we would visit our relatives in new york you know maybe once every two months or so and uh you know, not just then, but, you know, car music, we had a, a cloth bag of uh, cassette tapes uh, and one of them was the uh, Free Will and Bob Dylan. So um, definitely remember hearing this from an early age. And, but like you said, I mean, a song like Blow in the Wind, you kind of take for granted in a way. And it's, I mean, amazing thing about doing this show with you is having an excuse to actually, you know, dig into a song and, and try to hear it uh, fresh, you know, in, mm-hmm. in, a, in a new way. So, and that's been really interesting because uh, a lot of realizations have uh, come to me about the song, and of course, learning more about it, just reading. Um, uh, but yeah, like like you said, I mean, genius arrives. This is the uh, <laughs> the mother of uh, all uh, songs, and or you know, Bob Dylan. This is the this is the one that um, really put him on the map in terms of like singer songwriter and also the fact that it is it became such an anthem you know uh, a scenario like you said in case his second record flopped i wonder anyway if this song would have lived on because this song apparently had a life of its own even before um it came out on the record you know people were singing this in the washington square park apparently like weeks after it was uh after he debuted at uh, gertie's right which i guess we're going to go into but um you know woody guthrie's uh, this land is your land um that spread all all around uh the country i think primarily through like uh camps like day camps or, or sleepover camps that kids went to and um and that became like an anthem so i wonder if this song would have had a, a life of its own anyway yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, uh, according to uh, Clinton Hanlon's book, uh, Bob Dylan, A Life in Stolen Moments, uh, this song was first performed anywhere at a, at a, a, like a dinner party that, uh, that a friend of Dylan's organized for local folkies. And that was part mm-hmm. of the idea was that in exchange for a meal, you played. And yeah. it was in late April that Bob Dylan debuted this song. And then just 
like a week later on April 9th, Gil Turner played it at uh, Gertie's. Yeah. And back, back then it only had two verses. It didn't have three. But you mm-hmm. could see, again, in an alternate history where in that, in that world, it, the song takes off and almost leaves its composer in the dust because the song <laughs> becomes so famous. And, you know, in an era long before computers where you could sort of track this stuff, it could mm-hmm. have been like, oh, I don't know who wrote this. It's, it's, I guess it's traditional. And then, you know, and then you've got this poor kid like, no, 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 I wrote it. Oh, yeah, sure yeah, you yeah, did. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you could really see that. <laughs> And yeah, I mean, which actually happened because yeah. there's this uh, the, the kid in the New Jersey that claimed that. He yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's we could talk about that. I think we covered uh, that particular uh, that sort of angle, not necessarily that, that that case, but but that sort of angle of people taking me trouble. We could talk about that later on. In a, uh, we talked about that in a different show. But uh, but yeah, it's worth covering because that kind of had its own ripple effect. But I mean, of course, the Bob Dylan version was not a hit. It was the Peter, Paul, and Mary version. Mm-hmm. They covered it, and they put it on one of their records, and that became like a number one or number two hit. And well, it didn't just- that even come out before? Like, this is where I, I've been working on a timeline here, but um, I almost think that that came out like a week or two before. Um, Freewheeling? Uh, June 1963, Peter, Paul, and Mary. Okay, you're right. It, it, um, Freewheeling came out May just one just a few weeks before because may 27th is when uh freewheeling came out and but i think there was even another uh group that even put out blown in wow. the, oh, am i thinking of something else <laughs> it's like it gets very muddy and one thing that really makes me like paranoid when i think about this in like a retrospective way is like <laughs> he wrote the like he recorded that a year before in 1960 like the first session for recording uh, Freewheeling was in uh, the summer of 62. He wrote it in the spring of 62. He recorded Blown in the Wind, uh, summer of 62. Then, you know, he went to England in the winter and then he wrote, he recorded the rest of it um, in, uh, I guess, the spring of uh, 63. Can you imagine like that song? Like that just makes me paranoid. Like what if it like burnt? I mean, obviously he could have done a great re-recording of it but like the fact that it was sitting there for a whole year before it got released is like wow yeah yeah it is uh, by the way i was wrong it was released uh as a single uh it was a release with uh, don't think twice it's all right actually in august but peter paul and mary's version hits okay. number hits yes. number two yes. on july 13th 1963 just less than a, two months after freewheeling came out so yeah the time mm-hmm. they are right on top of each other in terms of yeah the versions. And of course, that's the most famous version. And when I was a kid, I was familiar with the song because it was such part of the culture. But I, I, I think I knew somewhere that it was a Bob Dylan song because it was just, you know, you couldn't help but be attached to this guy. But the version I had always heard was the Peter, Paul and Mary version. Anytime you saw a yeah. documentary about the 60s, mm-hmm. that, you know, that's the version you heard. And in, in some cases later on where there would be parodies of you know, you're trying to like make a kind of joke about the hippy dippy sixties. You would hear yeah. Peter Paul and Mary singing blown in the wind. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. They're the ones who really got attached to it. And there's a great story. I think it's from uh, Peter Yarrow. I think is the one who tells it, but mm-hmm. he said that he was in the room when Dylan was handed his first royalty check yeah. from their cover of it. And it was for like yeah. $5,000. <laughs> and in 1963, 
that's a lot of money. And like Yarrow's, yeah. he said, Bob's eyes were like, Woo! you know, like, oh my God, this is, this is what could happen. And that's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of amazing to think about. Speaking of parodies, that's, that's what I had heard was that there was already parodies of Blowing in the Wind going wow. around weeks after he had, uh, Gil Turner had uh, performed it at the, wow. I think it was at Gertie's. So like it had, it was obviously a hit from the beginning and uh, you know the incidentally about the uh, the verse is that there was only two verses. I'm actually looking at the. Um, I have a bunch of Dylan books in front of me. One of them is the the nice uh, scrapbook, you know, mm-hmm. the Bob Dylan scrapbook um, covering the early years. And um, there's the handwritten, you know, it, it looks like a real handwritten piece of paper uh, with the the verses. And the third verse, you can see that the second and third verse he has an arrow pointing from the third because he had them um in the reverse order because right. the, the original two verses was the what we considered the first and the third verse yep and he added uh what's now the middle verse but i remember for years up until recently if you went online and looked up the lyrics to blow in the wind the second and the third verse were in the wrong order wow and in a lot of old if you open an old songbook oftentimes it's in the wrong order and I used to be on short, you know, pre-internet. I was like, what is the order of the, because it seems weird that like the too many people have died. I mean, that's obviously like the, that should be at the end. Um, and it was in the middle uh, in a lot of these. Uh, so I don't know if anybody listening can relate to that, but um, so that's a funny thing. And one more thing about the lyrics um, in, in that when, uh, when he, Gil Turner played it for the first time there um, or, I guess the second time, if you include the the dinner, I didn't know about that. Uh, but uh, when I googled the original lyrics of "Blown in the Wind," the page that comes up is I think it's Sotheby's uh, auction house, mm. and th- they actually have an interesting little thing about it. And they they mentioned the uh, the Gil Turner thing, but they say that Dylan wrote the wrote down the lyrics in music for Gil and you know they taped it to the music stand or the mic stand and it's just I think someone doesn't really have their history right because as far as I know Bob Dylan doesn't read or write music I mean he can write you know he's, he's great at reading and writing out chord charts and but that's something else I mean the actual notes I don't th- I mean it's possible that I, I don't I actually don't see him writing out the notes I mean they did write out the notes in broadside magazine which is the first place that the music was published right the broadside um magazine that uh, pete seeger and others uh, produced and that's actually the first place that it came into existence in you know published yeah uh may of 62 the sixth issue of broadside magazine and there they would have written out the um or they did write out the the notes the the sheet music which is um it's funny because if you just look at the um the sheet music it looks boring i mean (laughs) you know there's there's none of his phrasing it's like how many roads must a man walk that like literally i mean it doesn't do any justice but of course the I guess uh, maybe people uh, understood that, like, okay, you can you can jazz this up a little bit if you're gonna sing it at home or. Oh, so okay, no, so all right. As a musician, explain that to me. What do you mean it looks boring? I mean, just the 
then like literally that's how they wrote it out was like how many roads must a man walk down and even peter paul and mary who sing it straighter than dylan does at least they also you know there's you have to do something with the phrasing you know the phrasing is the way that you you um basically kind of the the rhythm of the um the melody and Mm -hmm. dylan has a very very special way of singing it you know like um I actually, I mean, we could get into it a little bit more later, um, or I could just, I don't know. I guess now's the time. Um, <laughs> I, I, have the, I have the guitar with me. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> um, what? But, <laughs> and I'm a music teacher, did you know? Um, <laughs> incidentally, this is like a song that it, part of the reason I chose it was just because, you know, besides having lived with it all my life i've used it it's one of the few dylan songs i've used in the classroom because um especially around the martin luther king day um that's that's the time i would take it out but so dylan sings you know how many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man something like that and like i said i've taken it for granted the whole time but when you actually sit back and think about the way he's singing you know how many roads must a man walk down okay many that's the way you talk i mean how many roads but then he kind of does the same thing before you call him a man i mean who says before no one really says that so he he has this unusual phrasing um and and i actually think that it might be a bit of a stretch, but I have a little theory that um, this is actually Scottish influence because um, he would have, uh, you know, been exposed to, uh, there was a woman called Jean Redpath, uh, our friend uh, Tara Zook. Uh, she wrote about the Scottish uh, Dylan connection with Robert Burns and Jean Redpath. And she was, Jean Redpath was from straight from Scotland and she uh, moved to um, the village uh, to the U.S. And, and they knew each other in the early days. I actually contacted um, Michael Gray about this because I, I didn't find her in the encyclopedia, which I f- finally um, opened. Um, well, I didn't own it until recently either. But uh, so it was, it was nice to have an excuse to to get into that, and I lo- <laughs> I've been enjoying that a lot. Um, but uh, and uh, so in Scottish music, that's actually a typical, that's actually called the Scotch snap. This bum bum bum, and I, I promise I'm, I'm not just gonna play, but, but I do have the violin with me too. <laughs> and I just just to I thought was, this is gonna come a little bit later in the in the in the thing, but um, I'll just show it real quick. Uh, a Scotch snap on the violin uh, sounds like this. Um, and it's this rhythm. And it's basically only I've I've only heard that rhythm in, in in Scottish music. So, my theory about this, from a musical perspective, is that "Blowing in the Wind" is basically a, um, a Scottish spiritual, like African American spiritual, mixed with a little bit of twist and shout. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> that, that's my thesis because, as we know, it um, well supposedly 
the melody and even the harmony of the at least the beginning comes from uh, no more auction block right right an um uh, an old um you could say slave folk song that odetta um sang that's probably where he heard it and dylan himself uh sang this um i think at the gaslight there's a recording of him singing it and it's almost the same thing as we shall overcome too i mean it's basically the same um you know it, the beginning is um, a no more auction block. Now I'm, I don't even know if I'm singing the we shall overcome because we shall overcome and how many roads must huh. So that um, and the twist and shout part comes in when the um, answer my friend is blown. Of course, Twist and Shout, we usually think of the Beatles, 1964, but the original is from 1961 by the top notes. And also La Bamba, which he would have heard uh, Richie Valens singing a couple years before, 1958. And obviously this, is, this could come in other songs too, and maybe this is not where, he, but I think that maybe, because we know Dylan was into rock and roll from the beginning, you know, um, or you know twist and shout shake it up baby and the answer my friend i mean it's a little slower but it's the same it's the same three chords okay that's that that was my uh, musical thing take wow i I, i'm amazed at that because this feels like a whole language that i don't speak you know what I mean? Like I've heard people say, Oh, Bob Dylan took the like a Rolling Stone riff from La Bamba. And I'm just like, what? You know, yeah. <laughs> what? And then when you just do it right then and there, I hear it, you know, but yeah. the idea that twist and shout would have any, <laughs> there would be any connection to the song. I mean, well, I've heard, be, I mean, I just, again, I feel like I'm just, comp- I got, I, I got to learn how to continue on with the show. I got to learn how to play <laughs> read music or something. Cause it's like, well, you should, you should learn, three chords on the guitar because the this, these three chords this is a three chord song hey mr tambourine man and a bunch of other of the early dylan song desolation row it's the same three chords and you know what he got three famously said if you use more than two chords you're showing off <laughs> you know, which, <laughs> which is you know a little bit but um have you by the way seen this documentary on youtube well probably exists somewhere else too but it's called how bob dylan catapulted uh, folk music, also known as roads rapidly changing. No, I have not seen that. I can really recommend it because it's about you know it's some of the seems like some of the same footage from maybe from the score. Uh, no, they probably conducted all their own interviews, but there's a really nice interview. There's Izzy Young is in it a lot. Um, there's this Peter Samphol who was in the Fugs, and he's this like rock violinist. Um, he's like in his 80s now. And he says at one point, he goes that he loved rock and roll and he loved folk, but they were like, you know, uh, a bird and a fish or like there was no place they could uh, be together, except that when he heard Bob Dylan singing on the, on the first records, he said there was someone that took married folk and rock, which is really interesting that he said that because he's not talking about, Dylan going electric he's talking no, about no. and he said it's his phrasing and that really that that for me was kind of eye-opening I think that's maybe where I started to get the idea 
Also, that in the Positively Fourth Street, uh, there's this uh, excerpt where Richard Farina is, uh, starts banging on the table and like showing off his Cuban uh, polyrhythms, and um, and he says something about the, you know, th these uh, folk songs sound like uh, lullabies compared to like uh, la Latino music and and stuff. With the, he's like, we we need to have uh, music that has more of a beat in it, but supposedly he was talking more about the idea of like folk rock. But this Peter Sample, I think, was alluding to um, that Dylan somehow was, whether he was doing it consciously or not, probably he was doing it consciously. Um, as Izzy Young said, uh, he, he knew exactly what he was doing. <laughs> um, you know, so. So Dylan first debuted this by himself, for himself uh, on April 16th. Uh, 1962 at Gertie's Folk City. It only had the two verses, as you were talking about. And apparently it features, before he gets into the song, some comments about how this is not a protest song, oh, which is said, amazing yeah. to think. April 16th, the song is what? Maybe three weeks old? Mm -hmm. Four weeks old? And he's already kind of feeling a little bit of a pushback about, yeah. uh, you know, immediately clamping it into a... It's you know it's a protest song, and he was already that early on trying to break it free of that. And uh, I mean, we quoted the first verse. Let me do the second one. It says, "How many years yeah. can a mountain exist before it's washed to the sea? How many years can some people exist before they're allowed to be free? How many times can a man turn his head and pretend that he just doesn't see? The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. So, do you feel? Part of the the magic of this song, from what I you know, I've I've heard analysis and then you know my own version, my own living with it all, all these decades, is that it is so purposefully kind of vague. It mm -hmm. doesn't you know, it's not the death of Emmett Till. It's not you know the dollar the you know. Uh, uh, it's not a topical song. Yeah, it's not a topical song. It's I mean the times they're changing is right on the nose. This is more all encompassing more spiritual bob himself said uh blown in the wind was always a spiritual i took it off a song called no more auction block that's a spiritual mm -hmm. blown in the wind follows the same feeling he said that in 1978 there's the line uh from the bible ezekiel 12 they have eyes to see but see not ears to hear but hear not it has yeah. that kind of timeless quality in that it doesn't pin itself down to something mm -hmm. specific and that's what's made it it's not, you know it makes it appropriate for anything that you yeah. want to attach it to. At the same time, I could imagine that if one group really says, no, 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 it's this, I could see Bob already kind of being like, no, 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 you're limiting it. It's not mm -hmm. just this. But do you think, is that part of the reason that the thing is, it is so timeless is because it is, anybody can attach it to any sort of struggle that they sort of see in their, in their mind? Yeah, I mean, I, I would definitely say that that's the that seems to be the uh, the staying power. And but the first line feels like maybe it was kind of in a way topical because how many roads must a man walk down before you can call him a man? I mean, um, there's that great scene in the, the Scorsese document, the first Scorsese documentary, when um, Mavis uh, Staples says, you know, she's like a white boy said yeah. that? She's yeah. Like, yeah. like what? Like, and I, I, it, it is, um, I know we're going to talk about covers later, but like there are so many amazing African-American covers of this song that, and when you think about the fact that like it came supposedly from No More Auction Block and even though 
in Dylan's uh, performance of it uh, on Free Will and Bob Dylan, he sings it in a pretty white style, a little bit more of so-called hillbilly style, you know, the, mm-hmm. and his guitar playing is certainly from the kind of blue, early bluegrass, uh, you know, flat picking uh, style. And he's doing some cool stuff there with the, the bass line, the stuff that uh, you could derive from um, the Carter family, uh, Maybell Carter, who kind of invented that style of uh, playing like a, the bass at the same time as the guitar. But anyway, without getting into too many details about the music, you know, it's almost like he couldn't hide the fact that Blowing in the Wind is actually a black song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? In a way that like it became such a, a um, an anthem, especially for civil rights. And um, I think I I mentioned to you in the, uh, when we're talking about the song um, about the possibility of doing this, I, I, I mentioned that uh, my mother was involved with the, the civil rights movement and um in Oklahoma, my my parents moved to Oklahoma after they got married, and uh, my father was doing the um, um, service. Uh, he was he's a doctor, and he was doing the um, he was in the Native American um, health service, and so they they um, and my mother was studying at the University of Tulsa, and her roommate and best friend was a woman called Gail, who was black. And uh, it was segregation. This was like 19, I guess, like, I think like 62 or something. And so they couldn't, you know, socialize uh, at, if they wanted to go to wherever, eat out together. They, they couldn't do that. So, and they both got involved in civil rights and um, they, they ended up doing a sit-in where they got arrested, you know, for trying to get to served at a, um, some kind of department store, I guess, Woolworth style like department store and they were a group of people and the, the first uh, guy in the, the group was African-American and he tried to get served and they were a group you know so they, they, they did this together but obviously if my mom went she would have gotten served but um, mm. anyway uh, and the, the one behind the counter said I'm sorry you know you see the sign it says uh, white only and he says but you know I, I'm a veteran I pay my taxes I've uh, you know this that's like the essence of how many you know how many roads must the man walk down before you can call him a man so i think that that first line might have been the impetus for the song and then he decided to you know how many seas must the white dove sail before she can sleep in the sand that's a nice rhyme i a lot of dylan songs i do think are um often um rhyme inspired <laughs> Um, but he's he's such a master. I mean, that's part of the, the, the artistry of you know songwriting is that he's he's able to find a line that it's not just a good rhyme. It also means something. And um, and then the next line, you know, it's not that different. How many times was the cannonballs fight? It's kind of a repeat of the second line in a way, like about peace, but it's more about war. So in the first verse, he's already wrapped up war and peace <laughs> you know like it's very universal <laughs> well good um, good to get that out of the way in the first verse and uh yeah but i mean and then who was it that said that the the um chorus is impenet- impenetrably uh ambiguous or something like that like uh it's it it's obvious it's either so in your face that it's obvious that we can't see it or it's you know it's an it's an enigma and in, in this in that way, this song really embodies like 
Dylan, what he's so great at and basically what he was able to make his whole career on in a way is this like, what I call like embracing the paradox. You know, he's like seeing that everything has its opposite and we are made of opposites and we're all complex people. I mean, Joan Baez said that Bob Dylan is the most complex person that she ever met. <laughs> and I mean, I think everyone is complex, but he's... Some of us are more complex than others, though. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I think that he, he's open to his complexity in a way that's like... Um, and, that's a know, great way of putting it. That's a, good, that's, a much, that's a much nicer way of putting it than the way <laughs> I just you. said I'm being a dick over here. No, 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 no you're I mean, right. No, I think that's it, true. It's, and, 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 um, but he is so unusual. I mean, his behavior is so... I mean, like, how... How can some, one person generate so much uh, discussion that there's like many podcasts about Bob Dylan and like <laughs> hundreds of books and like it's just like there's something. There's other podcasts, so un- Nathaniel. What? Oh, I'm okay. sorry. All to right. break. Okay. All right. This is the most fun one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm but, being uh, a real jerk over here during this really nice song. I'm sorry. I mean, dude, it's starting cool. 2022 <laughs> on a really off off note. All right. I'm sorry. Continue. But um, no, I mean, I think I, I I said pretty much what I want to say. That there's another book I'm looking at right here called the What the Songs Mean, which uh, when my oh wife I read that yeah it, yeah you did read it okay yes I did read that one I, I think since last time because I, I don't think you had read it it's real I mean geez that guy is like first you have to kind of buy into his whole definition of like he seems so certain about what art and truth and all these things mean, but then he makes a really good uh, case for that this song is and especially the wind is kind of referring to the spirit of truth and that that's what dylan's songs are in essence about like getting to like and a lot of people have said like going to dylan and especially in the early days like going to one of his concerts was like a moment of truth and Mm. you know having epiphanies and and whatnot i mean he was he was definitely tapping into something that people were uh interested in but not necessarily uh, had Obviously, it was something pretty groundbreaking that he did. In the second verse, the line about the how many years can some people exist before they're allowed to be free? I mean, Bob's kind of, I think, protesting in a, in a little too much in that, you know, he can't be that surprised that that particular line was taken for one particular meaning. I mean, come on. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. how, how else are you going to take it, that, that line? Now, in terms of the, the chorus, the answer, my friend, is blown in the wind. And the fact that it's, you know, it is vague to the point of, well, it could mean anything. Mm-hmm. I always took it. Uh, and, and like I said, it, it was a song I was aware of long before I really understood what I was hearing and understood any of the, any of the antecedents to it or whatever. But the line, when I hear that chorus now, mm-hmm. uh, I think of the, the quote from Martin Luther King where he says, you know, the, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends mm-hmm. towards justice. Uh, I always thought that was an incredibly beautiful phrase. And apparently he himself took it from someone else uh, mm-hmm. in the 1800s. But I always, I, to me, I always took blown in, the answer is blown in the wind is that is a rephrasing of that idea that time marches on and people get freer. It takes a while, but it's out there and it's coming. Uh, mm-hmm. That's always how I took it. And so to me, I love that it each, verse ends with that of this idea that it's these slowly um uh, like the you know to use a different meteorological term like these waves 
are lapping at the shore and it takes a while, but, the, but it's, it's coming and it's inexorable. There's nothing mm-hmm. you can do. And so, and in terms of Dylan's vocal performance, I mean, again, I do not mean to uh, in any way uh, denigrate other covers of it or things like that. Yeah. because Everybody's different. Everybody hears different things. But like when I hear the Peter Paul and Mary version, right? Yeah. It's so pretty. It's so, I mean, their, their harmonies were obviously, they were, that was what they were famous for. To yeah. me, they're, and again, I really am sorry because I'm not trying to be insulting, but to me, I hear those harmonies and to me, they, they sound like, it becomes like wallpaper. It's so pretty that I, it doesn't, I feel like it doesn't, it doesn't uh, draw me in. I, well, my, they, you, go ahead. They made it into a, a, a pop song in, in a way because, and I didn't realize this, I mean, maybe I'd heard it a long time ago, but Albert Grossman, constructed that group right it was uh they're kind of like the original <laughs> spice <laughs> spice girls <laughs> wow oh. Oh, wow nathaniel <laughs> i mean okay the monkeys <laughs> if we're gonna go you know a quarter rest, of rest in peace I mean, michael mesmith we should say exactly uh, and um i actually met uh peter tork at a bar mitzvah um, did you really I, wow yeah I, I actually knew his brother and his brother's uh kids i i, I tutored them for their bat mitzvah or their b'nai mitzvah they they, wow. they lived, happened to live in the same neighborhood um yeah it's foot it's kind of weird like all the small connections it, another person from the encyclopedia that lived in the same uh neck of the woods and was friends with my parents is uh, gretel pelto who is in the anyway uh just one thing about the uh the Peter Paul Mary thing is that um, they made it into a four chord song. And I don't know if you've ever seen this like, four chord song on YouTube with the, the axis of awesome. It's this funny medley of like, they do a gazillion songs that all have the same four chords. You don't, have you seen that? It's like kind of an internet classic. No, I'm not familiar with that. Um, it's very funny, but the, you know, they do like, let it be. And, the, and they go into a, uh, it, like literally 50 more modern uh, songs than that but the uh but you know they peter palmer are singing like how many roads must a man walk down oh no no they, they go like this uh I, i'm doing it in the wrong key uh, how many roads must a um, man walk down you know they go to the minor before you can call him a man. Yeah, see, I'm already falling asleep right now. <laughs> I'm just, I can't, I'm just like, okay, you know, all right. It, and when they go to the uh, this, they always go to this court. You know, Dylan saves it. He goes, How many roads must the man walk down before you can call him a man? And then the next time, na 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 na, he saves it. But they go to that chord every single time. Na 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 na. And it makes it. I mean, there is a case to be made for it musically, but I much, of course, prefer the the Dylan one too. But there is this. Have you seen the clip of them singing it all together at the Newport? Yes. In 1963. Yes. If you listen carefully, it is actually a train wreck <laughs> musically because they are singing their version. He's the only one with an instrument. He's playing the guitar and they're all in the background with, I think, Pete Seeger and Joan Baez and the, the Freedom Singers. And, and they are 
doing harmonies and their harmonies are going to that chord in the not according to the the Dylan version and it is like I remember hearing that being like what is happening and then when I realized because I've been on in situations where I'm trying to play the Dylan version and someone else is doing Peter Paul and Mary like a guy I know here in Sweden he he grew up with the Peter Paul and Mary version so he plays that on the bass and it's like if someone else is doing the Peter Paul and Mary version like you basically have to just adjust and play with them otherwise it's like hell right. um so <laughs> it's it's interesting like that that there's such two i mean obviously there's many other um versions of the song but those two are are really like um in a way the uh the competitors yeah i mean and even the reason i brought it up and again i apologize everybody peter paul and mary are classics and i don't mean to be dismissive of them but it's just in terms of my personal taste and this is what for some people it works like Joan Baez again, we just talking about Joan where she says, you know, for some people Dylan just doesn't connect at all, but if he does, he connects very deeply. And, and so to me, and it's just how my ears hear sound. It's the, the grit in the voice of the, yeah, he is doing the slightly hillbilly kind of voice. He was still doing that. And for the freewheeling record, it's the grit of him singing the words that give it an edge which makes the song in my mind, even the, the original one, the, the one from 1963 off the, you know, first song off the record, yeah. it still has that urgency and that mm-hmm. feeling of just, again, like a little bit of an edge to it. And when I hear it sung as like the version you just did, it just, it doesn't sound like anything to me. It just sounds so mm-hmm. passive. Now, again, if you're playing that song uh, in, in a kind of a group setting or like maybe for children, uh, that's a great way to introduce it to them because a little mm-hmm. kid is not going to want to hear, ah, you know, Bob Dylan's very, you know, they're going to be like, what is this? You know, but if you could get like, you know, Raffi to sing it or something, yeah, yeah. you know, I mean, but that's a great way to teach kids the song. Cause it's, it's a great message and it's a great series. You know, it's not even a message. It's a great series of questions to let these, let someone ask themselves, mm-hmm. you know, you hear the questions, how many roads must a man walk? Well, yeah. How much, how much do you have to uh, undergo before you're considered a person? That's a great series. And by the fact that Dylan is not, unlike other protest songs, and like he would do later on in the same record, and then certainly on the next record after that, you know, he's not answer, he's not making strident points. He's just asking a series of questions. Now, by even asking the questions, you're making a point. You're sending yeah. a message by even asking it. But by the fact that he's sort of hanging back a little rhetorically but then to me that voice is so it sort of just cuts through it just cuts through the potential treacle of it that that's what gives it that frisson that i love so much and that's why some of the other covers have not done a lot for me now we'll talk about there's lots of other covers there's one that i found that bewildered me which i actually really kind of like we'll talk about it shortly um (laughs) but uh and yeah go ahead no, just um, you said a few things that uh, were interesting. Um, this uh, about the quality of his voice. I mean, because like you said, I mean, uh, it asks these rhetorical questions um, in a way they're almost like uh, koans, you know, like the uh, Zen Buddhist, mm-hmm. like uh, what is the sound of one hand clapping? I mean, that's more than just rhetorical. I mean, it, it gets you to think in a certain way. And, but so do these questions you know and i was actually talking to my mother earlier and um 
and she she described them as uh, kind of Talmudic, you know, like mm. the Talmud, the, uh, the the Jewish Bible. Uh, there's these, uh, um, or actually, wait a minute. <laughs> now I feel like a bad Jew because I think it's more about the study of. You know, so the study around the the Jewish Bible, like uh, the rabbis get together and ask these difficult questions, like, uh, and these are like basically Talmudic uh, questions. Um, but they, um, uh, you know, it it's almost borderline. It could be borderline banal, mm-hmm. but I think the saving grace, the thing that makes it really work, is the chorus because it's such an enigma. It makes you, you know, it almost like it brings you into a state of consciousness that's like just by listening to it, you know, like, um, yeah, asking these questions. But, you know, you could be like, oh, well, you know, this is these are never going to get answered. But then it's like uh, when he sings the answer, my, my friend and that that has always been kind of like interesting because my friend mm. sounds endearing at the same time. It's like, are we? can we be friends yes please <laughs> bob dylan <laughs> it's like but it's like you know it could be kind of like it's someone that is could theoretically be a little bit on a pedestal you know like um a friend of mine talked about the all-knowing voice of bob dylan like it you know there is the sound and i remember thinking when i was little when this sounds like a, a cliche but um thinking you know it's almost like the voice of God. I mean, who who is this? Uh, and everyone listens so intently, you know, like, uh, and at those early concerts, it's like, it is almost like uh, going to church in a, a secular church, maybe. But uh, um, so he was, um, you know, my, my brother, my oldest brother, he was in a band. Did you ever hear a band called Clem Snide? From I have, your, I have not. Boston from the beginning and then New York. And they were one of the first like indie bands, like, 90s there is still a band but my brother's not in anymore but they had a song that actually was on the show ed do you remember this show and it was an nbc yeah yep, show. Yep. yeah that used to be the um the foo fighters had uh, a song in the intro and then clem snide had the song called moment in the sun when it's my moment in the sun and anyway i, I think it got taken off after like half a year because people were complaining <laughs> but um that song it, there's a line in there where he sings something like, um, I I wish um, something like, I think that war and hate and death is getting everyone down. <laughs> and it's so like trite. And, it, but he, you know, that, that was on purpose. Like he, he wanted to be kind of like sarcastic and um, it, you know, this song blown in the wind could almost like, be that but like i said in and like you said with his vocal performance and there's a certain amount of like uh, pathos but also restraint and it's kind of he sings it kind of straightforward like um it's not it's not over the top i think the thing with peter paul mary is it's a little bit over the top and apparently it it was a big hit on the easy listening uh, Mm. (laughs) (laughs) right so um right it's like because then it's like it's not too terribly challenging that version again i don't mean to get on this mm-hmm. whole down mm-hmm. then this whole i don't need to go down this road where i'm just you know being so snarky about the, these people because again there's peter paul and mary but it just i'm just trying to think about what is it about the song when i still listen to it even though it is now 60 years old and it has yeah. been used in so many forms and it's become such a standard that what why does it st- in my mind why does it still retain 
it's energy. How is it? And, and something else, uh, you know, kind of to me backing that up is the, the third mm-hmm. verse when he says, how many times must a man look up before he can see the sky? How many ears must one man have before he can hear people cry? Yes. And how many deaths will it take till he knows that too many people have died? The answer, my friend is blown in the wind. Now, again, Dylan's for the, the quality of his voice, at least for me, he is yeah. able to convey things that on paper look ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And the line, how many ears must one man have conjures up a very silly image. Mm-hmm. How many ears, but like, what, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's a silly image of the, someone with what six ears. What does that <laughs> look like? You know I mean? It's silly, but it's maybe we should he, get together with the one in John Wesley Harding with a, a gun in every hand. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and <laughs> it's like, but when you hear Dylan sing it, it sounds profound. Yeah. Even though on paper you look at it and you're just like, that just looks very silly. But That's there's something, point. again, with yeah. the, the grit of his voice. And then, of course, he follows it with the heaviest line in the song, which is how many deaths will it take till he knows? And I love the way he leans into the word deaths mm-hmm. uh, on that. He's like, how many deaths? Like, he kind of like, I don't know, he spits it out, but he leans hard into that till, till he knows how to, too many people have died. And again, it, so it's, it kind of gets away from, if you might, if that ears line sounds a little goofy, it immediately moves you on to something that's so heavy that you're like, whoa, okay, now we're kind of, all right, the, the song is really la- really landing, and then it wraps up. I'm glad you men- mentioned the whole thing of my friend. Um, that's a really interesting idea, and that the, the person who is asking you these questions is presuming a sort of kinship that might be hard to do. I mean, nowadays we find ourselves, you know, <laughs> the whole debate of can you be friends with people of certain political stripes because of, what, of, because of their belief systems? Yeah. You know, is is that good for the world? Is that good for your humanity to just write tons of people off? I don't know. But there's that kind of inherent friendliness that Bob's got in the song of dancer, my friend. And you're right. He is kind of like this godlike being who is telling this other person the answer is blown. Like the singer knows the truth, which is a big thing to take on to say, yeah. oh, I know what's happening. The answer is blown in the wind. And I guess maybe Bob could argue. I'm not saying I know that. He's just saying the answer is out there. Maybe the answer isn't what you think it is, but it's out there. So it's, it's, it packs in so which, much for three verses. Yeah. We, we talked about this, uh, this quote. I, I had asked if, <laughs> if, I, if I could uh, have dibs on this, uh, this quote. Uh, there's a famous one. I think it's from uh, Sing Out magazine. When um, I don't think there's any record. I mean, I think they might have recorded it, but it would be interesting to know if that tape is anywhere but I'd, I'd never heard it but it's in print anyway and he said um well there ain't too much i can see about the song except the answer is blown in the wind it ain't in no book no, or movie or tv show or discussion group man it's in the wind and it, <laughs> it's blown in the wind <laughs> too many of these hip people are telling me where the answer is but oh i won't believe that i say it's in the wind and just like a restless piece of paper it's, it's got to come down some, but the only trouble is that no one picks it up, the, the answer, when it comes down, so not too many people get to see and know, and then, and then it flies away. I still say that some of the biggest criminals are those that turn their heads away when they see wrong and know it's wrong. 
Yeah, I, I, I tried. Um, that is a marvelous early 60s Bob Dylan. You really got the intonation right, too, the way he would kind of like pause in weird places. Uh, he was very affected. So that's very good, Nathan. Have you been practicing you, that you. or you just kind of? Uh, no, actually, that's the, that's the first time I, uh, I, I didn't have a chance to. Uh, I practiced the song, but I didn't get a chance to. You didn't, you didn't I, workshop it or anything. You just I didn't did it. Workshop, All right. but if, good. I've, I've tried um, doing Dylan before, but uh, he, um, yeah, I mean, of course, this is very ambiguous. All these things he's saying, but it's it's a nice analogy. I mean, yeah, that it comes down sometimes in kind of what you're saying about like the arc of truth, like that you know it will come, but maybe not in our lifetime. <laughs> no, and that's and I will say I find that to be uh, de- depressing sometimes when I mm-hmm. think about that because I, I think about how much better it is for most people of uh, of any sort of minority than it would have been. 40 years ago and i think well how much better is it going to be 40 years from now and i'm like i hope i'm around to see that Mm -hmm. Uh, and how much better will it be 40 years from that i won't be around Mm -hmm. to see that barring some sort of head in a jar scenario and so that's (laughs) you know that's sort of tragic i mean it's not again i don't want to get to we've already been talking for an hour and i don't want to get too far afield of the other things we want to cover but like i've been watching um the TV series American Crime Story lately. I didn't watch it when it originally aired, and now my fiance and I are catching up on it. And we're doing, we're watching the season about Gianni Versace, and mm-hmm. they're talking about you know it's all set in the '90s, and there's all this stuff about how, uh, how how daring it was and risky it was for Gianni Versace to come out as as gay in the mm-hmm. '90s, and you're like, you know, I lived through that. That's my lifetime, and I remember all yeah. that. But you watch it now, and you're like, God, it really. That was contra- like what you know like that was controversial. Isn't that, an, isn't that an uplifting thing too to, to think like how far we've come? I mean, yeah. Um, you know, of course, you could look in retrospect and say, "God, I mean, I'm glad that I didn't live in uh, you know 40 years ago or uh, um, 100 years ago." <laughs> you know, this is a weird analogy, but I actually heard a podcast, the Swedish thing from uh, the Swedish radio which has excellent stuff um, about Nostradamus and he you know was uh, apparently like a a doctor and a philosopher and actually his family was Jewish from the beginning but they converted to Catholicism and chose the most (laughs) Catholic thing they could think of Nostradamus (laughs) which means Notre Dame you know and And uh, but apparently he was treating uh, people that had the plague. He he never got the plague himself, but uh, he would go, you know, help these people and somehow didn't get it. But um, and he wrote all those um, short poems, which mostly had to do with the death and destruction and which was very popular during the medieval time. Um, And he so he kind of hit the head on the hammer about like finding something that was in the consciousness at the time. Um, was able to print these poems and they became very popular and you know people started to think that he was some kind of like uh, um, what's the word uh, psychic or whatever uh, but basically because the way he wrote those poems was in a very general way I mean one thing you could bet on is everyone's gonna die <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean yeah. it was like that's a safe bet and here Dylan is saying uh, you know how many deaths will it take till he knows that too many people have died I mean once again that could be banal because obviously we think he's talking about war because there was the vietnam war and in the first verse has to do with the cannonballs but on one hand death i mean he's not specifying that people were killed 
I mean, that's mm-hmm. implied. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think most people, nine, nine out of 10 or 99 out of 100 would say he means people that were killed in a, in a war or something. But it could be read if you just take it for, you know, the words on the paper that it's um, how many deaths. I mean, what kind of question is that? Of course, everyone is going to die. And how, how, what do you mean too many? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. But so, I don't know. I just, it, this um, thing about Nostradamus, like uh, that, um, if you can write something in such a universal way, you know, that, that, that is uh, part of the uh, lasting power. Um, you know, uh, about the civil rights, I have another book in front of me called uh, Everybody Says Freedom by Pete Seeger and uh, a guy called Bob Reiser. I actually bought that directly from Pete Seeger in the early 2000s in uh, Massachusetts. And um, it's, a song, it's a book of civil rights songs. And, uh, you know, We Shall Overcome and songs like that. And I, I looked up Blown in the Wind. It's only mentioned once in the whole book. It's not included as one of the songs, hmm. which I thought was interesting. And it made me wonder, is that because it wasn't really used in places like Mississippi? Or was it because <laughs> Pete Seeger had a little bit of a chip on his shoulder when he <laughs> wrote the book? I think it has to do with the former, that it wasn't really used it was i think um if this is correct that it was more like in popular culture and that you know artists that supported civil rights used it but when it came to the actual rallies and i asked my mother this and she she um was at a lot of rallies and she doesn't seem to remember um blowing them in when being used at those kinds of functions Okay. Which is interesting because I yeah. always thought of it as a, you know, an anthem. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But apparently, um, and, and in the book, they actually get the um, history a little bit wrong because he went to Mississippi with um, Pete Seeger and they did some kind of concert on a farm um, where he sang only a pawn in their game. Right. Yeah. That, that footage looks like it's from the Dust Bowl. From 1933. It's amazing when you look at it. You're like, it looks like it's from the Grapes of Wrath, and yet it's Bob Dylan. You know, (laughs) like that doesn't. Okay. It's crazy. Yeah. Now, okay. Now, I do, we do want to get into uh, Bob Dylan's subsequent history with this song, Mm -hmm. but I want to kind of close out with that. So before we get to all that, um, I'm going to talk about some covers. Uh, I'm interested in what, you know, if you have a particular favorite cover. I found one on YouTube by Marlena Dietrich, of all people. Uh, <laughs> she did a lot of song people. She did a lot of music in the fifties and sixties. She cut albums, and I will say now. I mean, I've heard like the version by Sebastian Cabot. He like covered a bunch of Dylan songs, and they're just mm-hmm. what, what is this guy doing? And I will say, I mean, I love Marlena Dietrich. She's a great actress. But I, when I saw that, I was prepared for like, oh, this is going to be a train wreck. And yeah. I actually kind of liked it. It's it's yeah. actually pretty good. She does it very sensitively, but she doesn't overdo it she doesn't like in german right no 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 no. it's it well there is a german version but the version i heard is english okay and uh german one it's it's really quite lovely and uh i mean you might argue marlena dietrich what does she kind of know about this but but uh she was always very politically progressive and Mm -hmm. uh and i think she's probably this she maybe felt this very deeply but i was actually really a little touched i thought well this is this is someone of an older generation taking the words of a newer generation, but she's clearly got some understanding of the import of it. Cause it's actually really quite pretty. So, well, uh, get on your Marlena Dietrich. <laughs> and also, I mean, living through, uh, 
you know, the or at least growing up uh, after the uh, war. Second yeah. War. Yeah. I mean, that must have taken because I listened to it in German, and I the only thing I understood was the the part about the uh, the bombs, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and I it took on a different uh, yeah it takes on a different meaning that that is a fun thing about in covers in general is like I've heard you talking to people about like um, female covers of certain Bob Dylan songs. It brings a whole nother meaning. Yeah. Or like with the African-American, you know, singing um, covers of uh, blowing in the wind, then it it takes on another uh, feeling also. Yeah. Isn't it amazing to think that this song so inspired Sam Cooke that he went to write a change is going to come and then, of course, Bob Dylan performs "A Change Is Going to Come" uh, at the Roseland Ballroom in the in the 2000s as a tribute to Sam Cooke, uh, which is just sort of amazing. But there's that there's a, that movie "One Night in Miami" that came out last year that features uh, a meeting, a one night meeting of uh, Malcolm X and Jim Brown and uh, Martin Luther King and Sam Cooke. And you've got there's a scene where Sam Cooke pulls out the freewheeling Bob Dylan and puts it on. A turntable, the vinyl, yeah, and is kind of like, can you believe a white boy wrote this? You know, and he's yeah. sort of like, what am I doing? What am I singing? When this guy is, this guy is singing the stuff we should be singing it. So it's mm-hmm. what an, you know, that's just amazing that uh, that that would inspire someone like Sam Cooke to write. A change is going to come, which itself becomes this anthem. I mean, it's just, it's just like art, creating art, creating art, creating art. So, so anyway, I didn't mean to. So what? No, what no, no, no. Is there covers that you? Is there any covers that you particularly really love? Well. I, I um I really like uh, Stevie Wonder's um he he brings it he makes it even more anthemic in a way yeah. I think uh, with a way especially the kind of rhythm um that how is it um the answer, my friend is blowing yeah I don't know it's, it's something he does with the but one when you talk about surprising covers, uh, um, I liked the, the Marlene one. And um, one that I, at first when I heard it, I was like, wait a minute, you can't do that. It was the <laughs> Ziggy Marley. Okay. Did you hear the Ziggy Marley? They, no, I haven't heard they, the Ziggy Marley one. They did a um, an album. I think it was like Amnesty put out 50. It was when Bob Dylan was like, they were celebrating 50 years of Bob Dylan. And oh, right, right, right. Different artists. And the Chimes of Freedom, I think, CD. I think that was the name of that one. Yeah. Yeah. And he does this thing. I'll just sing a little bit. He goes, uh, um, it's like, uh, how many roads must a man walk down before you can call him a man? I'll take it to the chorus. The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. And it's crazy because, like I said, at first I was like, ah, you can't do that. But then <laughs> I, I, I listened to it again. And I was like, wait, it, he's actually staying true to the song because the, the answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. If you just change the chords, it's the answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. So he basically did like a folk thing, which is just like change one thing about the song of course then the verses are quite a bit changed but you know if you if you ever heard the original version of um house of the rising sun or one of the original versions with uh woody guthrie uh, woody guthrie it goes like there is a house in new orleans they call the rising sun 
it's like it's in major key you know and and the I don't know if it was Dave Van Ronk that made it minor key from the beginning, but you know, there is a house. Obviously it's, you know, the, the folk. So I, I thought Ziggy did a neat thing there with, um, you know, staying in the folk tradition and kind of like doing an homage to the two Bobs. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And then of course, uh, have you ever heard of a uh, Deepak? Yes. <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> Yeah, so um, I, you know, obviously that's uh, very, um, I, I did do a cover of it. Maybe we were going to talk about it later, but uh, that, that was fun. I, I just tried to um, basically emulate uh, Krishna Das, the Hare Krishna singer. When, uh, did you find, when you, when you tried to sing it, did you find it, uh, I don't know, not, I don't know if the word difficult is the right word, but like, what were your feelings when you were, did you feel like you could really kind of, get a hold of it if that if i if, if, if that if i'm making any sense i mean dylan in general is very hard to cover because um he does it so well himself first of all and then it's also very often it's kind of particular to him it's almost like the way he does things it, um and i wonder if this was a conscious thing like he he almost like put some kind of like um code on his songs so that to, to make you know the, like different uh, artists will do things to protect their own work mm-hmm. like there's some fiddlers that you know they tune slightly flat so it's like <laughs> hard to copy them and stuff like that oh wow and like yeah yeah, yeah. And, and dylan i know has said things like you have to protect your um you know protect your work and i think at some point um he did almost start to like uh like i said it's not i i wouldn't say it's for the sole purpose, but I think he he's very good at hitting many birds with one stone, such as like never singing a song the same way twice. I mean, right. that is a way of kind of ensuring like that it's, it's only him. And um, so, yeah, I mean, for me, the biggest challenge with covering Dylan is like, I want to stay true to the song at the same time. I want to do it in my own way. Um, so it has to be kind of a, it's a kind of um, not a compromise, but it's, it's a kind of bridge. And uh, so I felt like the way to get into blowing the wind for me was kind of going like the more spiritual uh, path. And, and uh, so I, I um, was able to, to make a nice recording, which people can hear out there. Uh, Deepak, it's D-I-I-P-A-K. And then blowing in the wind, it's on all streaming services. And it's um, in this with a really amazing sitar player and tabla player uh, actually tabla master called Suranjana Ghosh that happens to live in Sweden she's from India um, she goes back and forth to India and uh, then there's actually a Norwegian guy called Stian Grimstad that plays the sitar and he's been also traveling in uh, India a lot so really authentic um, uh, Indian sound on that and the, the sitar solo is like amazing um, so yeah just like I said in, and I also you know, in general, making music, I, and this is true for any art, you have to make something that you personally like. And they added the challenge with Dylan, like I said, staying true to the song. I also want, I hope that if, if he ever heard the song, that he <laughs> would like it too. But of course, I mean, he would want me to do uh, something that I would want to do. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, I, uh, 
Yeah, you mentioned the Stevie Wonder version. I love the Stevie Wonder version. I was very fortunate to have been at the that 30th anniversary concert that he was at, and that's what he sang, was Blowing in the Wind. And that was probably the only chance I'll ever have to see Stevie Wonder live. So that was great. I mean, you know, Stevie Wonder, again, hot take, pretty good guy, pretty good performer, you know? Oh, <laughs> He's able to cover Dylan and in my, in, my, in my estimation, the Beatles in a way that outshines their versions, which is tough to do. Wow. Uh, but you know, have you seen when he takes off his glasses to sing it? No. Yeah. No. He, there's a few YouTube um, clips where he uh, he kind of like levels with the audience. You know, he he wants to get down like uh, to the the truth, and uh, so he takes off his sunglasses. It's pretty powerful. Wow. No, I've never that seen that. I can't, I can't think he, of. There's like a long intro, like. Uh, uh, you know, where he's talking about how, like, uh, I've been singing this song for 40 years and I wish there was, you know, I, I could stop singing it, but I, you know, you have to, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's really powerful. And uh, of course, Joan Baez, I think she does it great. Um, sure. And uh, obviously, and, and also speaking of covers, because <laughs> Dylan, no one covers Dylan like Dylan, right? Um, he, his duet with Joan Baez, uh, is it 1976? Like the hard rain uh, mm-hmm. cover. I think that's amazing. I love the, the, the rhythm and just like the harmonies and everything. And also they, there's so much chemistry between those. Like, yes, it's crazy. Yeah. Well, I said, speaking of, of not performing the song, uh, it is a little surprising to learn that Bob Dylan. Uh, okay. It's, well, it's not surprising to learn this song has been performed live by Bob Dylan. 1,585 times. <laughs> Obviously it's up there, but he stopped performing it as of 1964, which is very early when you think about it. Now, obviously, by this point, he had moved on to, as he says, the less finger-pointing songs and the more personal stuff. And mm-hmm. all of that early material got chunked aside. But it, when you think about how huge Blowing in the Wind looms in his catalog, yeah. it really is sort of shocking to learn. He's perform- he only performed it, let's say, one, two, three, four, like eight times. In the 60s. Until when? And then not again until okay. 1971, wow. which is amazing. And that's something I wanted to, to mention, of course. Wait, he, eight times in the 60s? That's it. According according now, we know that BobDylan.com is not always accurate. Yeah. But, I mean, but it wasn't a wow. lot. It was not a lot. You know? Interesting. I wonder um, because it, it was already such a, um overplayed on the radio with Peter Paul Mary. I wonder if that's something to do with it. He wants to kind of distance himself. We have found some mistakes on BobDylan.com. So even if it's, let's say it's even, let's say that number's off by by 50%. Mm -hmm. uh, That's still, you know, 16 times. That's still not a lot. When you think about how many concerts he was doing, and it was when the the song was at its sort of height culturally, and yet it's still, he didn't play very much. Now, he returned to the song during the self-portrait sessions of all places. Uh, and then one of the things, one of the most touching versions I find uh, to hear is when he did, he pulled it out for the concert for Bangladesh. Oh, yeah. And uh, I mean, it the the roar of recognition that greets it when the crowd realizes what he's singing, uh, yeah. because he you know he just starts strumming, and then the minute he does, how many he gets into how two words, mm-hmm. how many, and the crowd erupts, and it's you know like what an amazing thing that I had to have heard to be like wow this is a song he hasn't done in eight years and here he is doing it with one of the beatles like that's amazing and uh i guess with a little arm twisting too because uh yeah first he didn't even really want to do it at all or like sing and uh and then george 
said something like, can't you do bone of them? And, and, and Dylan was like, what are you going to do? Like, um, she loves you. Like <laughs> Which is not at all the same thing, Bob. Not at all the same thing. Now, come on. Uh, I mean, again, and if a beetle asks you to do something, you do it. I mean, come on. What are you, what are you talking did, about? <laughs> before I forget, did you hear the uh, original, as far as I know, it's the earliest recording, um, which is uh, Izzy Young recorded it. I Maybe it was at the folklore center and Pete Seeger joins in and you can hear there's other people joining in on the second, third voice verse. It's, it's called like the lost sessions. No, it's no, on YouTube. It's, it's interesting because his voice doesn't sound like uh, it's not the same voice uh, he used on freewheeling. Hmm. It's like, um, and someone uh, described it as like, well, maybe this is the most like his own voice. Like if he was just going to vocalize like without, you know, putting on any kind of uh not being voice. Bob Dylan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um one little uh difference there was that he sings uh, how many seas uh, must the white dove sail before he sleeps in the sand. Oh, okay. Which was interesting. Because I mean in a way it's nice that it's uh, he he changed it to she. On the other hand, from a 2021 perspective, it's like, okay, why does the 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 piece stuff have to be female? <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, uh, um, so so yeah. So once after he did it for the concert for Bangladesh, uh, he then brought it out for the 1974 tour with the band, uh, and then it, it essentially it never really left the set list uh, ever again. At that point, if you go through, yeah. he performed it on the Rolling Thunder review. You just mentioned the version he did with Joan Baez. And if you look through all the years, it, you know, it was on every tour, 76, mm-hmm. 78, 70, you know, he skipped it obviously when he was just singing the religious songs, but it was one of the first songs brought back once he started doing, uh, you know, the, the, the mixture of the, the Christian material with the, with the, you know, established songs. And it's basically never left the set list and it's just been played through the eighties, through the nineties, through the two thousands. And as I said, all the way up until uh, 2019, now he's not singing it on this, current tour now you know there's you know there's only so much research i can do for any given episode of yeah, bob dylan yeah. so there's only so many versions i can sort of wade through to kind of find you know what's different i'm familiar with the ones on the live records and the alternate takes and things like that there was one though i wanted to highlight and i'm you know i'm sort of curious then if, if there what which ones you wanted to particularly yeah. discuss but the one that i really wanted to track down and I found this again in Clinton Halen's book, uh, A Life, uh, The Life in Stolen Moments. And he mentions this. This is on June 28th in Barcelona, Spain, uh, 1984. 1984. Okay, yeah. And he's doing this uh, show and it was broadcast on uh, Spanish television at the time. Mm-hmm. And anyway, he does the whole show and then he ends with, and this is, this is I'm reading from the book. It says, finally, there is blown in the wind, again, broadcast on Spanish television and one of the most exciting performances by Dylan ever filmed. After yeah. 22 years, Dylan rediscovers a song that has rarely been effective in concert. Well, that's obviously Halen's opinion. A clearly surprised Dylan reacts to the Spanish crowd's harmony vocals on the first chorus with a barely audible, oh, all right, before delivering an astonishing vocal performance, which concludes with him cajoling the audience into a series of choruses, once more, and then just once more, clearly wishing to play on and on but it is 4 a.m. Now, I read that in this book, and I was like, holy shit, how do I find that version? You know, I was like, that sounds amazing. 
And, you know, thank you, bootleggers. You make some pretty good stuff. That entire show is on YouTube, the entire two and a half hour concert. And Uh I listened to it and it really is amazing. And it is because Bob starts playing the song and the audience unprompted sings the chorus. And then you literally can hear Bob kind of smile you can hear you can hear someone smile yeah, yeah, yeah. you can hear him kind of go all right you know like he's tickled by it and it becomes yeah. this kind of call and response with the audience in a way that we generally don't hear with bob dylan concerts and it is um huh. a really amazing performance because it, it underscores how deeply embedded in the culture the song has now become and then you're talking about yeah. that he's singing it in he's singing it in Barcelona. I mean, another country yeah. even, which they don't even know this sort of English language version. But it's it, you can dig it up. It's on YouTube. Uh, it's amazing. And that you know, there's other versions I could talk about, but that was the one I really wanted to highlight because it is, it's to me, it's it's almost like the ultimate ver- the 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 uh, platonic ideal in some ways of yeah. blown in the wind as a live song. That's that's really neat. I, I definitely want to check that out. I I think I saw one with the Santana. He was playing with, um, that was nice. Um, I think it was also in, might have been in Spain. But uh, I I think you tapped into something with the the universality of you know just his delivery. Like you don't necessarily need to know it. It wasn't a John Lennon that said it. Doesn't matter what Bob Dylan says is how he says it or <laughs> how he sings it. And and I remember um, I I lived in the. I studied um, Spanish in Spain for one year um, during university and uh, lived with a, a host family. And uh, I had a, my CD man or whatever it was called, um, <laughs> disc man um, <laughs> back then. And uh, I, I was listening to Blonde on Blonde and I played my host mother. I gave her the headphones for a minute and, and, and it was... Um, I think most likely you you'll go your way and I'll go mine. Dun, 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 I love that, that beat. That one. That's one of my favorite. It's that like tune is so amazing. funky. And she put it on, and I remember her like closing her eyes and like, you know, her fingers on the and the headphones just like swaying her head back and forth and me like, and she's like, Bob Dylan es lo mejor. Like he's the best. <laughs> she didn't speak a word of English. Like literally, like I I learned so much Spanish living there because like, you know. I studied Spanish for like six years in the school. Didn't know anything when I got there. And, you know, within a week, like I could at least communicate because you're just wow. forced to, you know? And, um, but, uh, and there was someone else the other day that was talking about the same experience of like listening to Bob Dylan or hearing him in like another country. And uh, just, yeah, I mean, it's the, he's obviously for those of us in the know, he is a master uh, of conveying uh, emotions through the, you know, he's able to, uh, and that's also part of the the um, mastery of the way he sings uh, Bone in the Wind is just that he's able to, I call it word painting, which is a kind of a, usually like an opera and stuff for, where the, the composer kind of builds into the um, the music, like let there be light, you know, let there be light or whatever, <laughs> like it will be something that is actually, um, and he's able to kind of do that in a way that um oh i I always want to tell people that if you want to have some good ammunition about why bob dylan is the greatest singer in the world listen to your um episode with uh, amy um the opera singer uh heifer yes maude helfer yes yes yes. on the on the uh, all the tired horses exactly that's that's a great episode for someone that wants to hear it from an actual you know she's a professional opera singer i think she 
just started um, singing at like uh, the Tempo Emmanuel in um, <laughs> in New York. Like she's like a top notch uh, singer. And um, but uh, anyway, um, I saw Dylan last. First of all, congratulations um, on seeing Dylan recently. That that I want to hear more about that. <laughs> I guess <laughs> we'll hear more about it soon. <laughs> I hope. Uh, but uh, I saw him in 2019, I believe, in the last time when he came here in the, to Stockholm. And uh, it was really good. And I'm pretty sure he sang Blown in the Wind as an encore. And, um, you know, I, I I think of it like the Bob Dylan, it's like he's gone to the um, outer rings of Saturn. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's you know my my uh, i feel like my soul is beginning to expand you know that, that line <laughs> and, uh, it's like he's really expanding um and you know because he's doing like someone and i remember thinking this and someone recently i heard them say have the same thought about how he's turned it into like a folk jazz fusion like <laughs> i mean it's like he's playing the piano and he does this like you know how he just finds like a few notes to like play over and over yep. like as a, and to borrow another classical music uh, term, that's actually called ostinato. That's usually something that the bass plays like over and over. But so I think, and it actually means obstinate, like uh, stubborn. So, and, and, and he does, that's a kind of interesting uh, technique that I've, it is something like almost like a jazz musician would do, but Dylan, you know, he uses whatever musical abilities he has, to the best of his capability, which is always like the best that it is for the song. I mean, we wouldn't, I wouldn't want Bob Dylan to play virtuoso um, harmonica. I mean, it would sound like it would kill the song. You know what I mean? It's perfect the way he plays the harmonica, which on some albums is actually quite advanced, I would say. But um, have you seen this clip of him playing with uh, Van Morrison in, um, you know, they're in Greece? Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I love the, those uh, scenes. And there's this Van Morrison song he's playing and Dylan is playing the harmonica and he literally finds his three notes that he just plays the entire song, but it works. Like it just, you know, he's playing it very unconventionally, but it's, uh, um, yeah. So I, I don't know, besides the hard rain, I would say just seeing him do it live. Uh, it, was um one of my favorite uh performances yeah i've 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 seen him i didn't get i didn't go through the list of all the times i've seen bob live and see how many times i've seen blown in the wind but i've seen it at least once or twice and yeah. it is kind of you know amazing uh to think uh that you know i'm here with in the room with the guy who wrote this song this thing that's going to be etched in the history of popular culture forever and he, this is the guy that wrote it you know, if this, song, if this song did not exist before he put pen to paper. Uh, yeah. It's just kind of kind of amazing. And, it, you know, it makes me think, you, you mentioned the Rough and Rowdy Ways tour, and we just did an episode where uh, one of my guests talked about seeing Bob live, and he sat down to next to this old guy who had not seen Bob live since 1965. Mm-hmm. And the guy goes, oh, I hope he does Blown in the Wind. <laughs> and, you know, uh, they were like, well, he's probably not going to do that. But I mean, mm-hmm. that's amazing that that song still 60 years later is that Im- embedded in that guy's brain that he's <laughs> hoping to hear it when he sees Bob live all these years later. He's like, oh, I still want to hear that song. I'm like, that's that is funny. remarkable. I said, it's a, it's a song for the ages. It's the, uh, you know, there, if you, if you want to say there's probably maybe five or six, if you want to break it down to the core, core, core songs that are, you know where the 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 
the Bob Dylan legend rests on. If it's a pyramid, you know, these are the bottom rung. This is one of them. I mean, this is one of them that's just will live on forever. And it'll be a, there'll be a point where probably it will just be known as traditional, you know, like maybe history will subsume his name and it'll just become a traditional song that no one remembers anymore. Who wrote it? It's just a song that exists. Mm -hmm. It's just a thing. Um, but so yeah, it's, it's just, uh, again, it's, it's blown in the wind. It's, it's, you know, I mean, in, in some ways I think like a Rolling Stone, and I said this when we did the live show a couple of years ago that like, to me, like a Rolling Stone is to me like the ultimate Bob Dylan song. Cause I think it encompasses everything that mm-hmm. he says in all his other songs, which mm-hmm. is how does it, how do you, how does it feel? But blown in the wind is just the thing that made him that name. It became Bob Dylan at that point. And, all the import that that name brings to it is with this song. And, uh, you know, my father, uh, as I'm sorry, uh, uh, just, uh, this idea of, uh, you said something about encompassing everything that my, my father has a nice, uh, I remember him saying, saying a long time ago about Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan, that's, uh, it's all one lot. It's all one song, <laughs> right. you know, yeah. it's, it's one long song. And I think that's, uh, that's what they say about folk music sometimes too. It's all one tune. Um, and, uh, and I also think it's kind of, like you said, it's the beginning of, of, uh, or the gene, you know, genius has arrived or something, um, that, uh, I wonder if it was around this time or if he already had this idea about like, uh, making art, you know, because I think that there's something, um, you know, there's the topical songs, which are obviously that, that's a broad concept, but you know, what is art, but, um, obviously Dylan uh, is an all around artist. I mean, he's a visual artist. He yep. does uh, metal work and you know, metal, exactly. And making so. whiskey. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I wonder, because there is something I think to be said about like that, um, you know, he went in a more artistic direction, obviously, um, and with another side of Bob Dylan, you know, he's going to more introspective. And um, I, I, w- I wonder if that's um, or if he already had that, that idea before, because uh, we shouldn't forget and coming from Sweden, I feel like it's, it's also important to um, mention that he did win the Nobel prize in literature for what was the um, uh, giving new expressions to the, great american songbook Mm -hmm. you know so i wonder if this song in a way directly leads to that in a way yeah it it all leads to everything as we've seen you know i mean like (laughs) you said it is kind of all one long song when you you think about it so uh well i mean nathaniel i think we should wrap it up here we've been talking for 90 minutes i (laughs) this song is so huge that i wanted to make sure we didn't leave anything on the table once in a while i'll do an episode and then like a week later i'll you know the episode's wrapped and I remember that I didn't mention something and yeah. I, damn it, you know, and it's like, now I'm going to do it, you know, and I really didn't want that to happen for blown in the wind. No, uh, of course, as any artist like Bob Dylan, who's still out there creating, uh, you know, who knows what could happen? You know what I mean? He might next year deliver some live version that everybody goes, Oh God, that's the ultimate version. I mean, odds are yeah. it won't happen, but it, it might, you never know with this guy. So you never know. We might have to do another Bob Dylan, another blown in the wind episode at some point down the line. But for now, uh, I feel like we did, did the song, uh, justice and uh, like I said I really wanted to kick off the new year with something big and this is kind of the biggest of the big so thank you so much for, for coming back to the show and, and tackling this huge topic with me. 
Oh, thanks so much for for having me. I was I was really really excited, and and I'm I'm still excited. This is going to make me um uh very happy for the rest of the. You know, obviously we do have a couple of weeks of the year left, but for the listeners, it's Happy New Year. Um, by the way, I actually joined Twitter only to partake in Bob Dylan um, stuff <laughs> after hearing you and Tara rave about it. Um, and uh, so um, I I still have um, some ideas if anybody is interested. Um, and uh, but it's probably a good call to. Um, <laughs> 90 minutes is a good marker. I think so. Um, I think so. But th- yeah, just thanks a million and uh, wishing everyone a happy new year. Absolutely. So uh, I do want to ask you the question I've been asking everybody. Now, this is this is a little less fanciful because you're a musician and you've done these things. But this is a question from the Pomegranate County Irregulars. Is, have you got invited to a Bob Tribute concert and you're on first, Nathaniel? What song would you perform? So is that a different oh, answer from anything you brought? I mean, again, you've done this, so it's not exactly... Uh, as much of a reach as for some of my other guests, but do you have you know do you have an answer for that? I mean, if it was the first song of the concert, right? Or does it matter where? I, go? I think the, in the, the the question you're on first, so you're you're leading <laughs> oh, off. So what, what are you going to yeah, start that, with? That's hard because one of my favorite ones to do live is uh, one more cup of coffee, but I don't think that's a starter. <laughs> I, I don't think that would be a good start. So I'd, I'd have to, uh, I'd have to get back to you. Uh, I also love to play as I, as I went out one morning. So that, that could be a cool opener. Okay. That's a, be unusual. We covered that. That's we did. That was your first episode. We did. About Dylan, we did. And I would try to play the uh, harp. Okay. I, I've been right. teaching myself the Irish harp a little bit. So very cool, man. So, uh, <laughs> well, again, thank you for coming. Is there anything else you want to mention before we wrap up? Um, just, uh, if anybody wants to hear my, music or anything it's uh like i said deepak is spelled d-i-i-p-a-k i have two dylan covers out there and um on twitter i think it's deepak music with a k instead of a c is the swedish spelling i can D-Pak. never find it even though i follow you on twitter i'm never can, uh-huh. i can never remember how it's spelled i'm always typing it in it's like where is it? i know he's here somewhere <laughs> deepak music Deepak, uh, yeah d-i-i-p-a-k-m-u-s-i-k Exactly. And I think I actually even have a, an extra thing on there called Glasser Comedy because I'm trying to do a little bit of comedy on the side too. So um, just trying to do everything. Just doing everything. Before it's, doing everything. Before it's Absolutely. too late. I look forward to your metal work and your whiskey whenever you get Oh my get God, you know, well. bootlegging it. There you go. So anyway, <laughs> thank you so much for coming back. I really appreciate Thanks, it. Uh, of course, everybody you can find back episodes of this show or all the episodes on our website, finewaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on any podcatcher of your choice. And if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network, go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast, and there you're going to lock various rewards, one of which is to be name-checked on the show of your choice. So big thanks to Robert Ward, Steve Cronin, Max Hutzel, Sebastian Crow, George Doherty, Joaquin Meckel, and Paul Rother for their support of Pod Dylan. I very much appreciate it. So yeah, as uh, Nathaniel said, Happy New Year, everybody. I hope it's a great 2022, and uh, we will see you next week. But until then, bye. How could he write how many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man? This is what my father went through. He was the one who wasn't called a man, you know. So, so how, wh- wh- where is he coming from? White people don't have hard times, you know. This was my thinking back then because I was a kid, too. What he was writing was inspirational, you know. They were inspirational songs, and they would inspire, you know. It's the same as gospel. He was writing truth.